wonder whether you can turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter 2. We're going to look at John 15 uh, a little bit later, after coffee. Um, but this morning, I'm in Colossians 2, and I'm going to read uh, for us Colossians 2, verses 6 to uh, 15. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Well, essentially my uh, introduction for this morning was done uh, last night. But for those of you who've just arrived, uh, welcome. What we did last night was really looked at three snapshots. Three snapshots that gave us a reason to uh, consider this issue of union with Christ. And uh, I suppose the main one I want to reiterate was the first one that I gave. I uh, spoke a couple of years ago to a group of 30 Christians in two different settings and asked them how they would describe the Christian life. And they came with all kinds of great things about reading the Bible and praying in church and being holy and so on. And none of them mentioned Jesus. And it's just one of those interesting things that somehow as people thought about how the Christian life developed, Jesus disappeared. And I think I had that sense that their image of the Christian life was essentially Jesus sort of floated off back to heaven and we're down here trying our hard, hard, hardest to do the best that we can. And I was saying that's not the image of the Christian life that the Bible gives. And so what I want for the next three sessions is really to unpack how do we live as a Christian, as those who are united with him? I will pick up more of that as we go on this morning, but I want to dive straight in and begin with this. The Christian life starts with us being united to Christ. The Christian life starts with us being united to Christ. I've spent some time out in Kenya, and I remember the first time that I visited Kibera, which is the sort of main slum area in Nairobi, and there's plenty of things I could say about Kibera, but one of my sort of first experiences was in walking to Kibera and immediately seeing a huge crowd who were in a sort of local pub watching an English football match. And it was just one of those in Kenya and suddenly there's an English football match there on the screen. The reason it was a shock was partly it was an English football match and felt familiar. The second reason it was a shock was because that part of Kibera wasn't supposed to have any electricity. <laughs> And so actually I didn't ask too many questions, but somehow they'd managed to connect themselves to an electricity supply so that everybody could gather around to watch this English football match. 
you see, when you're connected to the power supply, there are all kinds of good things that come to you, including the ability to watch football. And that, if you like, is the image I want us to have in mind. You see, in the person of the Lord Jesus are all kinds of blessings. And what matters most is that we're connected to him, that we're joined to him. It's actually in Ephesians chapter 1 that Paul talks about all the blessings that come to us in Christ. Last night we looked at Colossians 1 and we saw the language of Christ in you. More often Paul speaks about us being in Christ. Either way around, it's the language of union. And Paul in Ephesians 1 says that there is every spiritual blessing in Christ. And he goes on to list them. We're chosen in Christ. We have adoption through Christ. We have redemption, the forgiveness of sins in Christ. Apart from Jesus, we miss out on all those blessings. We're disconnected from that supply. But when joined to Jesus, we benefit from all those blessings. And Paul in Ephesians 1, when he talks about how you become a Christian, says this. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, he goes on. When people hear the gospel, the message of the Lord Jesus, and they believe it, so they're included in the Lord Jesus, joined to him. And all the blessings of that flow out to us. They're all in Christ. Rory Shiner's an Australian who's just written a book called One Forever on this theme. And he puts it like this. Union with Christ is not just one of the things we get along with adoption, forgiveness and hope. Union with Christ is the means by which we get the whole package. Everything comes to us as we're united with the Lord Jesus. All the blessings flow from him. I have to admit, the way that I've um, worked on union with Christ has fundamentally changed the way that I teach the cross. So look at this verse from 2 Corinthians uh, 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me take you back to Sunday school type stuff. Let me use the, uh, the illustration that sometimes people use to illustrate the cross. We have an image of sin, which seems to be Michael Vaughan's autobiography. But anyway, leaving that aside, if this is me, I'm guilty of sin. That blocks my relationship with God. At the cross, Jesus takes my sin. He pays the penalty for my sin, which means I have a relationship with God. That's okay. Then I sort of developed it a bit more because actually the verse says more than that. So God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. And there's a swap going on. So if this envelope is, is Christ's righteousness, then I get that. So there's a swap going on. But actually, even that's not quite right, is it? In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. Do you notice the language of in him? Actually, it's not primarily the language of swap so much as the language of union. So let me run that illustration past you again. If this is my sin, and if this is Christ's righteousness, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we become the righteousness of God. That's to say it's not just a swap with things going backwards and forwards, it's actually the language of union. Because the problem actually with that first illustration is that actually you're still left with two people who are far apart. The reality is that 
we're united with Christ. And on the cross, our sin is paid for by the Lord Jesus. So that what is left is him and me joined together in his righteousness. You see, it's the language of union. It's not this sort of strange thing going backwards and forwards with two separate people. It's actually in Christ, as we're joined to him, that we receive all the benefits that flow from the cross. Martin Luther, in his book, The Freedom of the Christian, uses this image. He imagines a, a rich man and a poor girl, and he imagines them getting married to each other. He says, that's what it is, if you like, to be a Christian. So that actually the poor girl gets all the blessings, all the riches of the man. And he gets all her debts. And they're joined together. Which means what's left is two people joined together with all the blessings that are ours in Christ. It's not for nothing, actually, that Paul uses the language of marriage in Ephesians 5, as a symbol of our union with Christ. So what I want to say is, the Christian life starts with us being united with Christ. That's how we receive all the blessings of his work uh, on the cross. That's how we receive all his riches. But actually the key point that Colossians is on about is the fact that the Christian life continues in the same way. So let's move back to Colossians. Uh, It's always interesting whenever you come across a letter to ask this question. Why does Paul write what he does? You know, what's going on in Colossae, which means he has to write this letter? I think whenever you come across a letter, it's always a bit like hearing sort of half a mobile conversation. You, you know that experience of being in a train and walking along, and you're hearing somebody talk loudly on their mobile, and you can't help thinking, what's going on? What's the situation? After that, I was doing it recently in Oxford and uh, I was walking along and hearing somebody on their mobile behind me and this phrase came out I don't care if she's friends with Michael Portillo (laughs) which to be honest it's only in Oxford that you have mobile conversations like that but it is that question actually what's going on in Colossae that means Paul writes as he does let's have a look at some of the evidence let's see what Paul says So see what he says in uh, chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. He says this, My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And then note verse 4, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you, by fine-sounding arguments. Or see verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. And then verse 16. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious (coughs) festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And it seems to me as you put all the evidence together that there's a particular threat to the Colossians. Perhaps a a more sinister form of the opening illustration last night where people were starting with Jesus and yet there seemed to be those in Colossae who were just pulling them away from that or from him towards human thinking 
which meant the centrality of Christ disappeared. Jesus slipped from center stage. It might be that the Colossians started off being thrilled about being united with Christ. The danger is they're going to be led astray from that. And that's why Paul writes as he does in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live or to walk in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. He's saying you started the Christian life by being united with Jesus. Now continue in that vein. So actually using an architectural image in verse 7, you have been rooted in him, your foundations are in him, now be built up in him. I mentioned last night we've got a building project at Woody Road, and frankly I don't understand any of it, but, but even I would be surprised if the architectural plans had the foundations there and the building there. <laughs> that would not be good. And what Paul is saying is that's the image for the Christian life. You're in Christ, and the Christian life is actually going higher and higher in that foundation in Christ, not moving from him. That's why he goes on, talking about being strengthened in the faith. Again, having that deeper and deeper appreciation of that gospel of the Lord Jesus that you've been taught, a deeper appreciation of the reality of Christ in you. Or overflowing with thankfulness, there are seven references to thanksgiving in Colossians, and you can understand why. Because if the Christian life is simply Jesus floated off to heaven, and I'm trying really, really hard to live for him down here, I'm not going to be thankful, actually. When somebody tells you to do something, you're not primarily saying, oh, so thank you for telling me to do that. But whereas if the Christian life is Christ has come to live within me and I'm living out that relationship with him, then I'll be thankful. In a sense, whether we're thankful is a good test of whether we've got our concept of the Christian life right. As Paul is saying, if you're built up in him, then you'll overflow in thanksgiving to him. And so Paul is saying you're to continue in Christ and not go anywhere else, verse 8. Why? Well, here's the first main thing. Because you have fullness in Christ, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Well, that's quite a claim in itself, isn't it? In Jesus, all the fullness of God dwells. And you have been given fullness in him. That's to say, because in Jesus, all the fullness of God lives, and you are joined to him, so you too have fullness you have everything you need in your union with Jesus. And that's why you don't need to have another concept of the Christian life. You have all you need in Jesus. You imagine going out for that big Sunday lunch, the roast dinner, the Yorkshire puddings, the roast potatoes, the, the full vegetables, and it's so good that you decide you need seconds. And then you have the apple crumble and the custard, which is so good that actually you go for thirds of that. And you have that very pleasant experience of feeling completely stuffed. <laughs> Frankly, it would be ludicrous to say, I need to stop at McDonald's on the way home. Paul is saying, you have everything you need in Christ. It's ludicrous to go anywhere else. Everything you need for the Christian life is in him. You have fullness in him. And because the fullness of God is in him, you have all that you need. 
So think about the Christian's battle with Satan. What is it that we need in our battle with Satan? Well, fundamentally, we need Jesus. The one who, verse 10, is the head over every power and authority. The one who has defeated the powers and authorities at the cross, verse 15. What do we need in our battle with Satan? We need Jesus, in whom the fullness of deity lives. Well, then Paul, in verses 11 to 15, goes on to outline all the things that we have in our union with him. Notice two things about this list. All of these things in verse 11 to 15 are things that are given to us. None of them are achieved by us. None of them are dependent on whether I've had a good week or a bad week as a Christian. All of these things are given to us. And all of these things are given to us in our union with Christ. So verse 11, we've been circumcised in him. Circumcision is the language of something being cut away. And what he says in verse 11 is that the sinful nature has been cut away in the Christian. That's to say the sinful nature no longer has the upper hand anymore. It's no longer in control. How? Well, literally it's through the circumcision of Christ. That's to say his body, his flesh was torn away at the cross. They're defeating the power of sin. And as we're united with him, so our sinful nature is circumcised, cut away. He's giving in to temptation is no longer inevitable because the power of the sinful nature has been cut away in our union with Christ. Verse 12, we've been baptised with him. I'm not going to say much on this. We're looking at Romans 6 tomorrow morning, uh, which has got quite a lot on this theme. But again, just notice the language. We're buried with him. We're raised with him. It is always Jesus and me together. What has happened to him has happened to me in my union with him. Paul says, you've been raised with him. You've been made alive with Christ, verse 13. We've been made alive because we're forgiven. Sin leads to death. But actually when we're forgiven our sins, we have new life. We're no longer dead in sins. We're alive with him because he is forgiven all our sins. It's a great word, all, isn't it? That sense, actually, the sins of which I'm most ashamed are included in the forgiveness through our union with Christ. He cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. It may well be that what Paul's got in mind are the demands of the law, those commands of God that proclaim us guilty. What does God do with that list? Does he read it as a charge list against us? No, praise God, it's nailed to the cross. And that list gets cancelled as Jesus dies. I don't know whether you know this. If you're joined to Jesus, you are completely forgiven. Completely. It's all gone. We're not, in a sense, to be those who go to the cross and try and pull that record of guilt down so that we can carry it around with us and feel a little bit bad about ourselves. No, in Christ, complete forgiveness. It's all gone. It's why the Christian sings, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to his cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Ray Altland is a pastor in the States, and he writes about his experience as a young college student. 
And as a, a young student, he was deeply discouraged. He thought, I'm just, I'm just not the Christian that I want to be. Still these sins I give into. But he wrote this. He said, I'm so full of myself. I'm so frustrated. I'm so defeated. I'm so discouraged. I'm so sad. But Christ is sufficient. Christ is victorious. Christ is sovereign. Christ is capable. Christ is loving. And I'm forgiven. Suppress on and don't look back. He later wrote, give me Jesus. You can have all the world, but give me Jesus. I think many Christians are discouraged. That's what I said last night. And actually the fact that we have fullness in him is the thing that should lift our heads and say, I have what I need. Even the forgiveness of the ways in which I've fallen short. And Satan is defeated. That's what verse 15 says. Satan is defeated at the cross. All his weapons, those weapons of accusation and condemnation and fear that he wants to throw at us. Actually, the cross takes all those weapons away. We're not guilty. We're not condemned. We don't need to be afraid because Jesus defeated those, all those things at the cross and we're joined to him. We have fullness in him. So just some questions for you, just to stop me talking. Just to talk to each other for about um, five minutes or so, just in twos or threes. To what extent do you think we believe that we have fullness in Jesus? It might be easy, sort of, after spending 15 minutes or so looking at the passage. But, but actually on a Monday morning, to what extent is that I have all that I need to live as a Christian because I'm united with Jesus? To what extent do we actually believe that? And what difference do you think it would make if we actually did believe it or believe it more? You okay? Talk, happy to talk to each other? Some of you are. Good. Okay, let me, uh, let me pull you back together. Maybe you can, uh, can compare notes over coffee as to uh, how much everybody believes that we actually have fullness in Christ. But in, in some ways, that's the first challenge of, of, of a lot of what we're going to look at this weekend, is simply to believe that it's true. Um, it's to actually acknowledge this is reality. I am united. We are united with the Lord Jesus. James agrees. That's good. <laughs> Excellent. feel reassured. Good. So, here's the second thing. If you have fullness in Christ, don't go anywhere else. Don't go anywhere else. Do you ever get slightly surprised by the Bible? I mean, what would you write at this point? You know, what would your application be in verse 16? You have fullness in Christ, therefore tell the world. Get out there and tell everybody. Or you have fullness in Christ, live wholeheartedly for him. I wouldn't have written, don't let anyone judge you next. It's interesting, isn't it? Why is it that Paul makes that application in verse 16? Well, again, using the sort of mobile phone principle, it seems to me that there are almost certainly those in Colossae who are saying, you've got Jesus, great. Let me tell you how to develop that. Let me tell you how to go further. Here's something else you can add. And the result is, those in Colossae who are just there with Jesus, we're probably beginning to feel a little bit inferior. 
yeah, maybe we're not as committed as these guys who are saying they've got all these things. Maybe we should go after them. And Paul's saying, no, don't let anybody feel, make you feel inferior because you simply have Jesus. What is it they were going after in verses 16 to 23? seems like they were probably going after a strong adherence to the Jewish law. Don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. And that may well be reference to the Jewish food laws. You really shouldn't have eaten that bacon sandwich this morning. Or possibly the Jewish calendar. You really should be observing the Sabbath. And Paul is saying, no. That's actually going back to the shadows. It's, if you like, it's going to visit the Grand Canyon and getting obsessed with the signpost a mile away. What a glorious signpost. Come and look at the signpost. You know, the reality is in Christ. That's where we're fixed. That's where the Jewish law is pointing forward to. Don't go back to the shadows. And don't let anybody who's going back there say, you must go there too. You've got everything you need in Jesus. The reality is in Christ. The Sabbath rest points forward to him. As the one who says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Supreme rest is found in Christ. Or verse 18, it seems to be there, they're going after sort of supernatural visions. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Again, there were probably those who in Colossae were, were saying to the church, you never know what I've seen. You know, I've, just, I've just been up with the angels, just been worshipping God, I just had this amazing experience. You haven't had that. Oh, yeah, come, come out, I'll tell you how to get this brilliant exercise. Oh, it's amazing. Wow, aren't they spiritual? Paul says they're unspiritual. That's actually the language he, he uses. His unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. Don't mishear me. Of course there's spiritual experience in the Christian life. Of course there's experiences of joy and peace. But there can, I think, be that grain of Christianity which, which is simply an insatiable desire for more and more ecstatic experience. And I think the danger with that is, in the end, it leads to disillusionment. It ends to that sort of driving yourself, I've got to have another experience. And frankly, that's exhausting. And it ends up in disillusionment. See what Paul says, verse 19. Such a person has lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. A head without a body isn't going very far. Actually, if you lose the centrality of Jesus and actually get diverted simply to supernatural experience, you lose that sense of, actually, I've got fullness in Christ. I have what I need in him. He's what I need. And then the third thing, and I wonder whether this comes closest to home, is don't rely on lots of human rules, verse 20. Since you died with Christ, the basic principles of the world... Why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. I think it's often the case, actually, when Christians want to be more committed. What we'll do is they'll make quite a lot of rules for themselves. I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the other. 
and that'll mean I'll be a better Christian. It's often done in the form of combating worldliness. I remember talking to a friend of mine who uh, went to a Christian school, and not making any particular comments on Christian schools at the moment, but he said actually the rule they had was girls and boys had to walk up different staircases. Now, whether that was because staircases produced particular temptation, I have no idea, but, but in a sense, you sort of worked on that principle. If we get all the rules in place, godliness will come out the other end. And it was done in the form of combating worldliness. But the irony is this, what Paul regards as combating worldliness, or or what we might regard as combating worldliness, Paul actually regards as an example of worldliness. It's actually a worldly way of thinking to think that human rules will produce godliness out the other end. Because he says they're based on human thinking, verse 22, these are all destined to perish with use. Because they're based on human commands and teachings. It is a human way of thinking. If I do this, that will come out the other end. If I have all these rigorous rules, godliness will come out the other end. Paul says, no, no, no. The centrality of Christ and being united with him is what produces godliness, not human regulations. And besides which, verse 23, they don't work. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. John Piper, the American pastor, has written um, on these verses and he's got a great title for the chapter in the book. He says this, Don't fight fight flesh tanks with pea-shooter regulations. Uh, and his image is of our sinful nature being like this sort of tank that's rolling forward. And us coming up with our little rules being like a sort of pea shooter firing at the tank. So it's not going to stop it. Just that sense of let's be ordered, let's make more rules for ourselves. Paul says it doesn't work. This stuff does matter, actually. I remember a student who came to, uh, to Woody Road. And the first conversation I had with him was about what he could and couldn't do on a Sunday. And there were two things that struck me as I listened to him. The first was he was committed. You know, he did want to live for Jesus. The second thing I discovered was that he was absolutely miserable. You know, the Christian life wasn't about joy. It was all these things he had to do. And so I thought, well, tell you what, let's meet up. And we studied Colossians. And I remember him reading the end of Colossians 2 together. And he just said to me, That's what my Christian life's always been like. Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And praise God, actually, Colossians opened him up to a very different Christian life. It's now full of joy in knowing Jesus. That's the point, actually. If actually your your mind goes from, praise God, I'm united with Jesus and I live that out. If you move on from that to getting burdened down with, I must have another experience. I must keep this rule, actually you'll end up disillusioned. And Paul says it simply doesn't work. Well, here's the last question, briefly. If developing the Christian life is not primarily about greater visions or greater rules, how do you develop the Christian life? Well, here's the third thing. Fix your heart and mind on Jesus. Fix your heart and mind on Jesus. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. And what Paul does at the beginning of chapter 3 is, again, he reminds them 
of their union with Christ. He says, verse 1, since you've been raised with Christ, you're living this new life with Jesus. You've been raised with Christ. Or verse 3, you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. It's that incredible thing. You and Jesus locked together. Locked together with God. Always together. Never apart. That's the reality. It's just you can't see it, can you? You can't see a sort of Jesus and you locked together. You're hidden with Christ. I think that's what it actually means, actually. It is that sense. That is your reality. the reality. You just can't see it. You do actually have a secret identity, if I can put it like that. You're united with Christ, but at the moment you can't see it. But one day, verse 4, when Christ who is your life, that's an interesting phrase in passing, isn't it? When Christ who is your life appears, then you'll appear with him in glory. At the moment it's you and Jesus locked together, but it's hidden. One day it will be you and Jesus and everybody will see it. When Christ who is your life appears, you'll appear with him in glory. You're united with Jesus. And that becomes the basis for Paul's two commands. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your minds or seek the things above, not earthly things. So Paul said, since you're united with Jesus, set your heart and mind on where Christ is, on, on him. Why does that matter? Why does it matter that we set our mind on things above and not on earthly things? Well, it's because in verse 5 onwards, which we're not really going to look at, Paul's going to tell us to put to death what belongs to our earthly nature. Set your heart on things above where Christ is, not on earthly things, and put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. And can I say, it will be impossible to kill off sin. It will be impossible to kill off our earthly nature if my mind and heart is just on earthly things. Forgive a gruesome illustration. Um, If I wanted to, I could kill a worm. I don't tend to. I don't make it a habit going around killing worms. But but if I wanted to, I could. I stand on it. I stand above it. By contrast, an ant can't kill a worm. It's on the same level. It can't stand above it. Paul is saying this. It will only as I live out my union with Christ by setting my heart on things above that if you like, I'll have the power to look down on my earthly nature and begin to kill it. It's only be as I live out my union with Christ by fixing my heart and mind on him that I'll have the power to change and to kill off sin. And you know that from your experience, don't you? It's when you are most satisfied with Christ that you have the most power to defeat sin. It's when there's that sense that I'm united with him and I'm fixing my heart on him. That's where you'll find the power to defeat temptation. John Piper, again, puts it like this. He says, if Christ is the sun in your solar system, then all the other planets, things like sexuality and speech, will be flying in their right orbit. If mind's fixed on Christ, then everything else will be where it should be. Live out your fullness in Christ by setting your heart and mind on Christ. That's what will give you the power to fight sin. So that's a question for us this morning. When we think about the Christian life, is Jesus central? What's the sun in our solar system? 
Fix your mind on Jesus and don't go anywhere else. Let me close this session with a quote, a fairly long quote from John Calvin. Don't worry if you don't get all of this, but hopefully it will make the right impression. He says this. If we seek salvation, we're taught by the very name of Jesus that he possesses it. If we seek redemption, we shall find it in his passion, acquittal in his condemnation, remission of the curse in his cross, satisfaction in his sacrifice, purification in his blood, mortification of the flesh in his tomb, newness of life in his resurrection, immortality also in his resurrection, protection, security, and the abundant supply of all blessings in his kingdom. In short, since in him all kinds of blessings are treasured up, let us draw a full supply from him and none from any other quarter.